0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester,
1: New York. As you know, our leadership team is on Leadership Team Retreat, which is super fun. Um, it is one of, the, one of the great things about being on a leadership team. So uh, for those of you who are thinking about Leadership Team in your future, uh, the retreat is just really fun. But they're off planning the future of Artisan and all things involved with that, And so we have an incredible guest speaker, someone who um, um, I had the joy of going to seminary with. And I remember, um, for those of you who are in school or going planning for school, when you walk into class, identify the smart people and sit next to them. And I quickly learned that Carrie Starr is one of the smartest people in my cohort. So I did everything possible to sit downwind so I could see what she was writing. Um, um, And... To that end, she, um, she has been an incredible speaker and leader, both in Campus Ambassadors and beyond. Um, so I'd like to invite her up, and she will um, obviously regale us. <laughs> Did you know you were regaling today?
0: Thank you. Cool beans. Good to see you. Well, two weeks ago on Friday, about 20 semi-strangers gathered in my living room awkwardly trying to connect with one another. Um, don't worry, this wasn't like a strange dating service that uh, we were providing. Um, <laughs> my husband and I do lead um, marriage workshops in our home, but when it comes to dating, I really am pretty hands-off. I've like put some bad combinations together, and I have a bad reputation on that. So I just, you know, once you're married, I know exactly who you belong with, but beforehand I'm not even going to pretend to know. Um, This was a group of college students and alum from Roberts who were preparing to go on a 10-day mission trip to Guatemala. And they were all, they are different backgrounds, different ages, very different personalities. But every single one of them had one thing in common. And in fact, that one thing that those 20 different people had in common, every single one of us in this room today has in common as well. And that is that every single one of us has a deep desire to feel love and connection with others. And that night, that awkward evening in my room, my living room, with these people that kind of know one another but kind of don't, it was almost tangible to me how much they wanted to be loved and accepted by one another and how much they feared that they would be rejected once they were known. Now, we come to this this desire, this need, quite naturally because it's how we were created. We were created for relationships. We were created to need one another, to relate to and to feel love and connection with other people. In fact, if we go all the way to the beginning of the biblical narrative, which is where I'm going to take you right now, to the book of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, literally the beginning. In The beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. A little later in the same chapter, chapter 1, verse 26, quotes on and says, Then God said, Let us make them, make man in our image, after our likeness, Now, when I first started reading the Bible in high school, um, I thought this verse was a little strange. I had gone to church most of my life and owned a Bible, but I thought it was more of like a shelf-dwelling book, you know, like for dust collection and maybe good luck. Like, I didn't know people actually, like, read it. And so when I was in high school, I had a kid in my chemistry class who um, invited me to his youth group, and there we were encouraged to, like, read the Bible to, like, enrich our lives. And so I started reading and I thought, this is very confusing because I thought of God as singular and and not plural. And I was introduced to this idea of the Trinity and I'd heard that word Trinity before, but here God is identifying himself as three persons in one. And a little later, when I was in college, I got involved in youth ministry, and so I had a lot of teenagers that would ask me questions about this whole Trinity thing. And I was taught some really clever analogies to explain the Trinity. Like, the Trinity is like an egg. It's got like a shell and a white part and a yolk, but they make one egg, three parts, one egg. And I thought, okay. And then someone else said, oh, it's like an apple. You know, you have the peel and then like the fleshy white part and the seeds, and they're all part of the apple, one apple. But where these analogies fall short is that, you know, God is not an inanimate object. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are persons of God. One in three. It's really kind of beyond our comprehension. And as I read Scripture more, and as you read Scripture more, you realize that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are actually in relationship with each other. We see God the Son, Jesus, submitting to the authority of God the Father. We see God the Father send God the Holy Spirit to comfort us and to be our counselor. We see the Holy Spirit intercede on our behalf before God the Father. So there's this interaction where they're constantly serving and loving each other. And here in chapter 1 of Genesis, it says that we are created... Create them in our image. That's that's why we need relationships. That's why we need one another. It's at the very center of our being. God has been in relationship with himself for all of eternity. Isn't that amazing? And I, I can find no better place in scripture where you see this trinity relationship, which, by the way, one of the things we learned in seminary, right, was the word trinity is nowhere in the Bible. So that did not help my confusion at all at the time. But we see... God show up in all three persons at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. So Mark chapter 1, verse 9, starting in verse 9, says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So here we have God the Son being baptized. We have the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming down in physical form as as a sign over Jesus. And we hear the audible voice of God the Father. And we get this fantastic picture of the relationship, the loving relationship between the three persons of the Trinity of God in relationship with himself, affirming, loving himself. Isn't that amazing? That's how we are created. That's why have, we have this deep longing to, to have connection with others because it's at the core of who we are. It's at the core of who God is. And it's we were created to be like him. Now, when I was in third grade, about eight years old, I had a favorite book, Harriet the Spy. Anyone in this room ever read Harriet the Spy? Okay, we have some Harriet the Spy fans. Now, if you never read Harriet the Spy, I'm not going to take it, you know, hold it against you. Um, I I have two aunts, and they are both librarians. So every Christmas and birthday, what did I receive as presents? books, lots and lots of books. And so I grew up reading. To me, those were like the greatest adventures. You know, if you want to travel and you can't afford it, just read a book, you know, and it'll take you to that place. So I loved Harriet the Spy. For those of you who haven't read it, Harriet is about a 10-year-old girl, and she has a, a notebook. And she takes this notebook everywhere with her, and she jots down notes about her classmates and her teachers and her neighbors and her family and Harriet's like a sneaky little girl so she like starts finding places and ways to like spy on people without them knowing she's there So she starts overhearing conversations, and she starts making connections, and she starts making assumptions, which we all know are usually bad. And she's writing all these things down. And it's like this great adventure of how much is she going to get away with. And I thought, I want to be like Harriet. So I got myself a little notebook, and I started taking notes. And I start writing my little observations down. Um, Now, the property I grew up on, on the north side of the property, it was this stand of pine trees. And in my neighborhood, um, it was almost all boys. I was one of the only girls in my neighborhood. Now, I had an older brother, and this was great for him. They spent lots of time out in the street playing kickball and frisbee, and they just, you know, playing catch, and that's, that's where they hung out. And because this was the environment I grew up in, I grew up, like, riding bikes and climbing trees and building forts and more doing, like, boy things than girl things. And um, so I really, like, climbing trees, I I love heights. I've always loved heights. Um, My husband hates it. You know, I always, like, run off to the edge of a cliff or, like, to climb up to the top of things. He always tells me I'm like a cat because I see something high and I climb on it and I get up (laughs) there and I'm like, oh, no. How do I get down? But this one pine tree, the pine tree that was closest to the road was my favorite. And I had like a specific route I could get up with my, you know, notebook tucked under my arm. And it gave me great access to the street below. And I would take notes on my, you know, brother and all his friends. And I was going to be Harriet the Spy. Growing up with all these boys around um, sometimes made it hard Um, often I was excluded from the games that they would play. I wasn't old enough, I wasn't strong enough, I wasn't boy enough. Um, But there was one older boy who did want me to play a game that I did not want to play. And I didn't understand this game, and I didn't like this game, and this game happened more often than once, and it made me feel ugly and dirty and uh, ashamed and confused. And I remember before I got that Harriet the Spy book and I was eight, this this happened before that time, maybe around seven, eight, I'm not even sure. But I know that before that time, when I was in kindergarten, I had this denim pantsuit. This is the 70s, okay? So I have this denim pantsuit with these apple trees all over it. And between the apple trees, it's got these white groovy letters that say, I like you. Like, all over them. I'm like, shoulders to feet, I like you. I like you, I like you, I like you. Written all over me. In fact, this was the first sentence that I learned to read because it was all literally all over my body. And it was the first sentence I learned to write. And I would make little notes. i was so proud that I could write a whole sentence. And I would write little notes. And I would give them to people. I like you. I like you. I like you. I like you. And when I would meet people... That was my first reaction. I like you. I really liked people. I really liked getting to know people. Until I played that game that I didn't want to play. And I stopped liking me. And I stopped liking other people. And thought, people want to hurt me. And people are, people are not going to like me. And people are going to find out things. And I'm going to be embarrassed and I'm going to be ashamed, and I would take myself out of the game before something bad could happen, before I could be rejected, before I could find out they're not going to like me. And I would just decide, I don't like you. And even if I like you, you're not going to like me. And so I hid behind my little notebook up in the tree. And if you've read Harriet the Spy, you know that there's this inciting incident where her notebook gets found. You can probably imagine that that did not end well for Harriet. The people that she had written about in her notebook were hurt because she had made assumptions about them. She was someone that they thought they could trust, that they thought they were close to, that they hoped would assume the best about them, but she had put connections and made judgments about them, and they were hurt by the things she had written because the relationship wasn't what they thought it was once they saw her notebook. You know, when we hide up in the tree and we just observe other people and we make assumptions and we make judgments, we are not really in relationship with them. We don't really know them. And a lot of times we are up there because we're trying to protect ourselves. I don't, you know, we all have this desperation for connection and love. Remember I said it's, it's part of how we're made. As we're made in the image of God, we're made with the desire to have relationships, to connect and be close with people. But sometimes our past experiences give us a reason to retreat and hide in the tree and just make our relationships fit inside a little tiny notebook because that's safe. And if people really knew us and if people really got close to us and if they knew the things that were secrets and the things that we're embarrassed about and shamed about, they wouldn't like us. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want to be close to us. They would reject us. And so instead, we only show like certain parts of us that we think people will like and the things that we know we're supposed to do. Sometimes the things that we've done or the choices we've made that we're embarrassed or ashamed about are our desperation to be known and loved. Sometimes we've compromised our standards. Sometimes we've violated our principles and, and we've, we've made choices that we wish we hadn't made, but we can't undo it, right? We can't take it back. So whether something's been done to us or we've made choices that we're ashamed of, we, there's something in us that says, we need to hide these things. Let's get up in the tree. Let's stay up in here and let's just observe life. Let's just observe what other people are doing and let's just judge them and stay separate. But that's really not what we were created for at all. We weren't created to stay up in the trees, separate from everybody, where it's safe. Because it's not safe at all, actually. The more we hide things and only show people part of ourselves, gosh, even if they accept that, are they really accepting us? Are they really loving us for who we are if we're only showing them the sides that look good, but not the ugly sides that we're embarrassed about? Now, the teachers of the law... We're always out to trick Jesus. Do you remember this? They're always trying to set him up. Trying to, you know, it's almost like they had their little notebook where they were keeping notes, and they were just, he never did anything wrong. So they're trying to set him up, and they find one of their religious leaders who's a lawyer. Do we have any lawyers in here this morning? I don't want to insult anybody. So this, I mean, I'm nothing, I have a good friend who's a lawyer, right? Our friend, Lindy, he's a good lawyer. He's a good guy. Uh, but this is a religious leader and a lawyer. So maybe like a deadly combination. I don't know. And uh, he, he asks Jesus a question in the book of Matthew. Now this is, again, a setup. This isn't private, sneaky, Harriet style. This is out in public. Let's make Jesus look bad. So everybody rejects him. So this is the question. This is Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Well, I'll I'll start with verse 35 so you know it's a lawyer. So you know I'm not making it up because I don't like lawyers or something. All right, teacher. Okay, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you, this is Jesus, that's the he, He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I used to struggle with this last part the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I thought, gosh, I don't even like myself. So this is a really crummy standard. I mean, I don't even like me. So how are you supposed to like other people the way you like me? Well, I shared that I had a group of 20 people getting ready to go to Guatemala. Well, we I just got back five days ago. I'm still like adjusting to, you know, normal food and sleeping patterns and But half the time that we were there, we didn't have water. Like the water dries up, apparently, in that area of town. And um, we were working with orphans, and we were walking a lot on dirty streets, and I was really gross. And when you're really gross, I don't know about you, but you probably want to take a shower. And there were days that I would get up at five in the morning so that I knew that I would get a shower. Now, I would say that we are actually pretty good at loving ourselves. We might not like ourselves, but we're pretty good at taking care of ourselves. We know what foods we like to eat, and we do a pretty good job of making sure we get a chance to eat them. We know what we prefer to do for fun in our free time, and we're pretty good at protecting our time to do the things we like, right? We, we know, you know, there's one piece of cake, and cake is our favorite thing. We'll make sure we get that piece of cake before anyone else finds out there even is cake. We will, because we love ourselves more than we think. We orient an awful lot of our lives around making things comfortable and convenient for us, if we're really honest. So we might say up in our head, there are things I don't like about me. You might spend time, and I spend time, noticing the things that I do wrong. But I do serve myself more than I care to admit. And I do love myself pretty well. And Jesus is saying, love others the way you love yourself. Serve others, put the needs of others ahead of your own. The things that you want, that you find convenient, put those first. Now, this is different. This is a different kind of love than the love that most of us seek when we say we want love and connection. Most of the time, we're thinking, what am I going to get from this relationship? I want people to orient their their lives and their preferences and their happiness around things that make me happy and make me feel special and make me feel convenient. And I, I wish this wasn't true. Um, how many people are married? We have a lot of people in here. I assume have, we have some folks here that are married. And um, by those wedding vows, those are like big stuff that we like promised. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think as a married couple is you're not like supposed to keep track. Right When you love someone and you choose to marry them and serve them for the rest of your life, like you're saying, okay, I'm going to put you first and I'm going to make you feel loved forever. But I notice myself keeping track of like what I do and what my husband does. And I don't want to. I want to say, I just want to love you unconditionally and I'm, I'm going to serve you. So if, I, you know, if I'm the one that unloads the dishwasher every day this week, I'll be fine with that. But notice I've kept track of who's emptied the dishwasher every day this week because I love myself more. I want, I want to make sure it's fair that you're at least loving me back as much as I'm loving you. I remember there was this one week there. I got home late from work every single day. And I came home, and every single day dinner was made. It was really awesome. I was like, I could get used to this. And at the end of the week, my husband's like, we got to do something about this. I'm not making dinner every night of the week. Like, what? Well, this is not what I signed up for. You know, we say we love one another, yet we still find ourselves keeping track. We're not willing to just completely unconditionally serve. We're looking to be served. We're not unconditionally looking to give, but we're looking to receive. Now, there is only one person in the history of the world that can give love without looking for something to give back, and that's Jesus. He's the only one that we could ever love that does not need our love at all. Every human being that we try to love, that we try to impress, they're, they're looking for something in return, too, because our love is not perfect. We're almost not capable, but God is. And isn't it funny that we spend all this time trying to show like just the right parts of ourselves so people will love us, and the only love they can give in return is imperfect as well? Where if our if our ability to be loved our ability to be liked is rooted in we're already loved unconditionally forever by the only person who could ever love us unconditionally. If it's rooted in that, it's funny because we're suddenly free from the need to look better than we are because we don't have to impress. We don't have to pretend. We can be real. We can be vulnerable. We can admit those flaws, those mistakes, whether we made them or someone made them against us. We can be more honest what's funny is as soon as we start doing that, as soon as we start being more honest and exposing the things that are in the notebook that we don't want anyone to find out, I mean, how many people had a notebook or a diary of your own stuff that you were like, oh my gosh, I will die if someone were to find that, if someone were to open that up and see that? Well, when we actually open that up and reveal it to people we want to be close to, that actually causes a closer more um, loving, sacrificial relationship like we see God have with himself. It's when we're more honest, not when we pretend everything is okay and we only show you the parts of ourselves that are, you know, acceptable and that people will like. We don't have to just show the likable parts. If we just show the likable parts, we're actually not being liked at all. And the person that can give us, the only person that can give us unconditional love already knows it. Talk about the ultimate spy. Sorry, but there's no place that you're, you know, not being seen by him. He already knows. That's why he died. It's already done. If, our, if who we are, our ability to be like could be rooted in that, then we're free from having to impress other people and get them to like us so that we can be in relationship. One of the highlights for me of our time in Guatemala this past week on Wednesday night, we actually gathered on the roof of the building we were staying in, and we had a little bonfire. Um, it's made of concrete, so don't worry. We weren't, like, going to burn the building down. <laughs> I realize that sounds super strange. Um, we're all sitting around this, this fire, and people start sharing their stories. And they start sharing some of the uglier, darker parts of their story. And I'm, I'm, I'm watching people kind of reveal more of who they are. And not fear the rejection quite as much. And kind of get beyond the awkwardness of true honesty and vulnerability. And as each person shared more personally their story, it's like it became more acceptable for the other people to share theirs too. And they almost wanted to let the other people in the room or on the roof know you're not the only one who's not perfect. You're not the only one who's been through that. You're not the only one who struggles with that. You're not the only one who's a hot mess. That's a quote from (laughs) one of the people on the roof, by the way. And it just meant so much to me because I thought, now this is true community. This is real relationships where we're honest, where we're vulnerable, where we're not hiding at all in the notebook, up in the tree, sure that people aren't going to like us if they actually know. People, can, people need to know you. <laughs> you can't be known without showing the unlikable parts of who you are, and we all have them. And remember, the only person that can actually love us completely unconditionally already does. He's the only one that doesn't need our love back. So the closer we become to him, the more we identify ourselves in his love, the more able we are to truly love others without needing to be accepted, without needing anything in return. Thanks for letting me share with you this morning.
2: I'd like to invite you to communion together. It is now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire his help that they may lead a holy life. All who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them, all who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life, following the commandments of God and walking from now on in his holy ways, are invited to draw near with faith and to receive this holy sacrament. Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify that you are not righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. The table is open.
0: For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.